Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. I have another highlight for you today. You probably should know her by now. I was able to convince Elizabeth Ann Wright to come on the podcast with me to talk about her career, her path, her vision, her views on the industry. And she has one of the most successful episodes on this podcast. And I'm really happy that I was able to uh, get her on there. So uh, welcome, EA. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before I present you my catalog of questions, give us a quick introduction. Who are you? Where is your office? What, is your, what does your daily schedule look like? What you do? Okay, so my name is Elizabeth Ann Wright. I, I tend to go by EA. I am a partner in the medical device practice. I sit in the Brussels office. Uh, although I am in the medical device practice, our practice actually relates to both medical devices and medicinal products. And we help clients from the entire life cycle management, from determining the appropriate classification of their products. Are they a medical device? Are they a medicinal product? Are they a lab product? Are they a cosmetic product? Or a, even potentially a food product? And when we determine the appropriate classification, then we help them through, particularly with medical devices and medicinal products, we help them through clinical trials, we help them draft clinical trials, clinical trial agreements, data processing agreements, informed consents. We help them interact with the sites, uh, with the CROs, with the competent authorities. And as we go through the procedure, we help them interact with, for medical devices, notified bodies, as additional products with the competent authorities. We help them with labeling, even translation, promotional activities, what is permitted, what is not permitted, interactions with healthcare professionals, consultancy agreements, ad board agreements. And once the product is on the market, or even sometimes before that, we help them with quite often with crisis management on anticipated issues. You have your product, you've got a, an issue with, for example, at the moment with Brexit, we have a client who has their investigation on medicinal products manufactured in the UK. And they need to get it onto the market in the EU. And it used to be, it just went through the tunnel and we had no problem. Now we have to figure out how to get it on the market, how to get it tested in the UK, get it onto the market in the EU. What are the labeling obligations? Are there customs obligations? What are the tax implications? All of these sort of issues that were not anticipated. And with other clients, we have another client at the moment, They have just had their certificate of conformity for a medical device suspended. It's a very stressful situation to be in, of course. How do we address it in a way that it can be resolved and the med notified body's concerns addressed as efficiently as possible? When we get to the stage of notified body, is it's, you know, if they have suspended the, the certificate, it is, let's see how quickly we can get this resolved rather than they really shouldn't have done it. Is that a result of the Brexit itself or is that because there was an issue with the product? For that, that had nothing to do with Brexit. This was a, oh, okay. a product in the EU. Um, was there an issue with the product is a matter of some debate. There was no safety issue with the product. There was a manufacturing issue. Um, so the issue is how do you reassure the notified body and the authorities and were necessary, as in this case, modify manufacturing procedures, validate the procedures, and get the product back on the market and get the 
certificate reissued or the suspension lifted in the most efficient and the quickest way possible. We already completely got off script, which is fine by me because I find it really interesting. But um, one question in connection to that. So when, you, when you're dealing with, with this kind of issues and we have around the whole um, MDR situation and the dying of notified bodies, do you as a client, when those issues arise, have to reach out to this specific notified body who pulled your license? Yes, because the certificates are issued by the notified bodies. Mm -hmm. They are product specific. They are company specific. The notified bodies, they're not part of the authorities, but they have been designated by the authorities to assess clinical trial data, technical data, quality management data, all of the aspects of medical devices above a certain class. And if they are concerned about the safety and effectiveness of the device, they will either suspend the certificate or indeed cancel it. Canceling mm. is a big, big step. But yeah. they, will, they will suspend it for, for a period of time, quite often three months, giving the, the manufacturer three months to resolve the matter. Obviously, it's to the interest to the notified of the manufacturer to resolve it in less time than that because during that time, they cannot manufacture and they cannot supply the device. This is always the case when I talk to you and I'm trying to get in a specific direction. We, we get sidetracked based on the <laughs> fact that I have so much interesting stuff to talk about. It is but, a very interesting area. Yes. But coming, coming back to my small agenda. So before we really dive into your dedication into the life sciences and healthcare industry, I wanted to give the people a little bit of, of background. Because in our pickup conversation, I mentioned, for example, the three bar admissions you have, Wales, Ireland, Britain, and Brussels. So can you give us a quick recap on your career and how, for example, that came together and why that, where you have such a broad admission background, <laughs> which is quite amazing and <laughs> will potentially fill another like 30 minutes, but I really would like to know more about that. Okay, so I came to Belgium in 1985 with the intention of staying for nine months. I went to, to do uh, postgraduate studies at the College of Europe in Bruges. And after that, I thought I would stay for a little while longer to have some experience of working in Europe. I started out in life as a family lawyer, not mm -hmm. as a European lawyer, but I came and I really enjoyed it. After about three years, I was planning to go back to the Bar of Northern Ireland. And I met my husband, my Belgian husband. So I went back for a year, finished my bar studies and came back and have been in Belgium or in Luxembourg, where I was for four years, ever since. My first client was Beecham, uh, which is now part of GSK. Mm -hmm. And so my interaction with the pharmaceutical industry was from the very beginning of my career. And I then went, I worked in private practice I then worked for four years as a refondeur at the European Court with uh, Judge Murray. I then came back to private practice for a little while. I then went to the FTA Surveillance Authority to be a senior legal officer. It's a very interesting experience because it was the other side of the EA agreement working for the yeah. FTA pillar and did a lot of litigation before the court at that time, maintained my role with the pharmaceutical industry added some transport issues and procurement issues, which were interspersed with that. And then I joined Hogan Lovells or Hogan Hartson, as it was then. And I was recruited to help set up the European life science practice, particularly here in Brussels. So more likely your first client set your path 
as a life sciences and healthcare lawyer? You know, it did in a way. My first boss was heavily into the pharma and pharmaceutical and veterinary pharmaceutical sector and the alcohol sector. My second client was Bacardi. Um, so, <laughs> so we did some very interesting cases. We did the first case on bovine hormone, the first case, the first hormone to be banned. We did the first case on that. Mm-hmm. We did my first African swine fever case. And, you know, I then, I worked a lot in this sector. Then I went to a more, I suppose we would call traditional European law practice mm-hmm. and did some chemicals work until my boss presented me with a file and said, oh, well, that's more or less the same thing. And it was actually a piece of work for Pfizer. And Mm -hmm. from then on, I really didn't do, I have stayed in the pharma device and certain types of food sector ever since. So it was, um, it's a fascinating area. It's funny to me that a lot of kind of, career history started with like yeah i had my senior partner presenting me with this specific case or he was working on a specific matter and that set my pass for my career in the business and a <laughs> yeah. specific focus on the industry it's not like it's i'm i'm still waiting for this like i i was passionate in advance and i was like i really wanted to get into that um the more well, yeah. general well, what answer I'm... is like, yeah, <laughs> I had a partner who was into that and I got into his practice and he um, got me in this industry. Well, so. yeah, basically <laughs> that was, you know, it, the life science sector, um, there are not, there are now, but when, when, certainly when I started, there were no courses on life science or pharma, mm-hmm. virtually no uh, lawyers in, in, certainly in Europe focused on life science. In fact, even now there's a fairly limited number of people focusing on life science, which is That's true. intrigues me because it's such a fascinating area. Mm. But hopefully that, that does seem to be moving in the right direction from what I can see. So why three bars? Why am I members of three bars? Well, I started out as a member of the Northern Ireland Bar. Makes but sense, then the right? Northern Ireland Bar changed its rules and said you have to be practicing from the bar library in Belfast, which I couldn't do. I just no. couldn't do it. And I said, well, that's the rules. So to ensure that I didn't get tripped up on that again, I became a member of Spar of Ireland, which I could do because of my Northern qualification, and a member of the Bar of England and Wales, which again I could do from my Irish uh, qualification, Northern Irish qualification. The purpose was to ensure that security in my career, that I didn't have to go through this again. Mm-hmm. Weeks after, I mean weeks after my application to join the Bar of England and Wales was accepted, we had Brexit. That was my, that was my follow-up question because I remember that. Yes. I remember you sending the email saying, okay, I, I'm now officially a barista for England and Wales. And like metaphorically speaking, hours later, the Brexit came along. It was like the yes. perfect time. And this, from, from my amateur view now, gives you a really unique position because you can advise on the European law, but transition and advise specifically through England Indeed. and Wales, right? Yes. Working with our colleagues in, in the UK, we can absolutely do that. But because I there's my, my Bar of England and Wales... I'm still a member. I'm still a member mm-hmm. of the Bar of Ireland and the Bar of England and Wales, but I thought I need, again, another security. 
So because I have been here in Brussels for such a long time, I was able to become a member of the A-list mm -hmm. um, because of my European experience and made the application. Yeah. And the I have to say the Brussels bar has been incredibly welcoming and incredibly understanding of the trauma, and it cannot be described as anything else, the trauma that you face when you suddenly think, the basis on which I practice is about to disappear. Mm -hmm. So I'm now a member of the Brussels Bar as well. From a practice standpoint, we work together on a European regulatory working group. And we are 15 minutes in, more likely now, and you hear how passionate you are about your work and how you love what you do. So can you give us a little bit more background on the philosophy and the dedication you have for this industry? And it sounds a little bit tacky, but I feel like the reason a lot of us are in this, this field are the huge amount of dedication and the interest in the industry to learn more about and get involved in this highly evolving industry. So can you give me a little bit of why you do what you do and how you feel about it? <laughs> well, you know, I think the major part of what I really enjoy is the engagement of our clients. They are so invested in mm. this area. I think, you know, so many um, people talk about big pharma and big device, like there are these big anonymous entities, whereas the people that we work with, they're human beings that are so invested in this area. They are passionate about what they do. They're passionate about helping patients in their sector. Some of them will go to any lengths, including giving the products away for free. If they could do it permanently, they would sometimes. They are so passionate and engaged with what they do, and that is, that's contagious. Because mm -hmm. they can, they talk about their products, they talk about the medical conditions that uh, their products are uh, helping, and you get drawn into it. And the more I do it, the more I get drawn into it. And then it becomes somewhat personal, you know, when we had, when we learned late last week that our client was about to get their, well, got their certificate suspended, well, you know, they need our help, they get our help. And it was... It was a fun weekend, but a forgiven amount of fun. But that's what needed to be done. I was very happy to do it. Um, I have a very tolerant family who understands that these are, that this needs to be done, and we just do it. And the client, we're we're, we're it is when you can can resolve that matter or help them to resolve that matter. You know, it, it it's a nice feeling to think that you know the device is still on the market. It's still being used to help people like medicinal products. Again, last week, we had a client who desperately needed to find a way to supply an unauthorized product to a desperately ill child. Mm -hmm. And we helped them find a strategy to do that. So it is a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of mundane legally stuff to be done. But there is an awful lot of interaction, human interaction, and understanding why people became pharmacists, doctors became involved in these industries. And really, to them, this is, it's not just a, do a job, it is very important for them that they do the right thing. That probably sounds very corny, but this is, this is definitely the impression I get. Yeah, but I asked you about your philosophy and, this, and your passion behind it. So <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. the passion. So I think it's, 
it's not fair to say it's corny because I fully understand where you where you come from. So talking about success stories or experience and maybe matters that influenced you in the past on your path, are there in your eyes your biggest case, your flagship matter that you feel like was influential to your career and um, your path in general? Yeah, well, you know, there are three cases before the European court that are probably important to my career. The first one was a case that wasn't, it was actually in the beef sector, wasn't even in the uh, farmer device sector, but it was Emerald Meats. And it was a two-man operation in Dublin who mm -hmm. took on the Irish government um, to get beef quota certificates. And we went all the way through the courts, both in Ireland and in Europe. And this was, this was before the court first instance even existed. That was mm -hmm. a while ago. And again, it was how dedicated they were, how they felt that an injustice had been done. And they, we, we pursued this to the end. And in the end, in the European court, it was, I guess we'd call it a draw. But in the Irish courts, it was finally, very long time afterwards, was a success. The second one was probably with Pfizer Animal Health, which was a case of antibiotics. Uh, animal antibiotics and the question of whether or not antibiotic resistance could transfer between animals and humans to cause mm -hmm. antibiotic resistance. It was one of those cases that got to be extremely emotional. The, the authorities got very uh, wound up about it, even though there was a minimal amount of information to suggest, support it. And this went to be a huge case. We unfortunately we lost the case, but you know it is the pivotal case on the precautionary principle. So sadly, we we lost the case, but we did get actually the judgment of the court actually is, and I have relied on it in future cases on that. So, but yeah. especially this kind of cases gets you in front of the tabloids because it's public health and it's easy to nowadays you say it's easy to clickbait people into your media source system because it's playing with like human emotions and um, scares people even when it's not. One of the things that experience and age has taught me is you really need to choose your battles because people are going to find problems. Whether they exist or not, people are going to find problems. And they're going to talk the problems up. And yeah. what, what starts out as a, a relatively small matter suddenly becomes, to give you an example, <laughs> during the hearing in that case, um, counsel for one of the institutions stood up and said, twice, this woman's client will not be happy until there are dead babies in the street. <laughs> Bit of an overreaction, like, huh? But, you know, that's... Television acting. <laughs> <laughs> way too much wow. American television. Way too much. <laughs> you wow. know, it, 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 American court drama, cheesy court drama yeah, at really. its worst. And this is what he came up with in the middle of the European court twice. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, you have to, I, I think that, that it's important that you believe in your clients. Mm -hmm. and you, I can't even... Uh, I was trying to imagine in my head what the reaction would be without kind of giving you know, the 
good old face slaps and what are you doing this is all you have like (laughs) you know it is one of those things you think did he really say that and then you think well you know there's nothing i can't get up and have a drama because you're gonna you know there is no base what what do you say you're still in court right yeah you just you just kind of ignore it and move on but it is not something that you forget no definitely not that's that's a that's a, a cool story Especially with like the whole uh, standing up incident. <laughs> um, yeah. But coming back to like the general, the industry overall and what's going on right now, you already talked a bit about Brexit and the MDR, but what do you see as the greatest challenges and maybe opportunities as well um, for the industry in like 2021? And Disclaimer, we still have the pandemic going on. So this is all taking it all with a grain of salt because nobody really knows Uh (laughs) what's going to happen. But can you share a little bit of your thoughts for like what we maybe uh, are going to have in like 2021, 2022? Well, we are going closer and closer to the digital health environment where pharma and device and technology and data privacy are all interacting. And that there is is this amount of sophistication. These, the devices and the pharma products and the interaction with technology is presenting incredible opportunities. But it is also developing incredible questions about how do you regulate it? Who is responsible for this regulation? when you've got essentially four different areas of law and how do you uh, coordinate and consolidate those so that the pharma product can take the opportunity and the benefit of this new opportunity that technology presents as can the device sector and the technology development can, can ensure that they work together and these very, very bright people that are developing these products. But then you have to ensure the not only the safety and efficacy of the two products, the device and the pharma product working together, but also how can you ensure that the patient's personal health data is protected and that they understand the importance of protection of their data. Are we overregulated in terms of like data privacy and all this? Uh, I give you an, a quick example is, um, for example, the Corona tracking app with like all the testing and if you have been in contact with somebody in Germany, there is the app and you can see, okay, okay, I was exposed to somebody who was positive, even when it's just a couple, but I have no idea where, I have no idea who it was and I have no idea when, but I know that I was in contact with the person. Um, I think this is a pretty extreme example, but if you, since you are in, in, in constant contact, you see so much is is this holding us back in terms of developing and being like entrepreneurial and think forward? I would say not. I mean, how much more do you really need to know? You need to know that you were in contact with someone. If you were in contact with someone who's been tested positive, go get a test. Find out if you're positive. How much more do you really need to know? You, you can, the, the thing, someone of my generation, I'm from this generation that was pre-computers. 
So I don't feel the need to have volumes of information thrown at me all the time. I don't need to be informed about every everything. Um, mm -hmm. my, my, the industries with, with whom I work are incredibly sophisticated and very technical, and I love being involved in that. But when it comes to my own personal data, you know, I, there is a limit. There's a limit to how much I really feel I need somebody to tell me. And there is a limit to how much I'm prepared to share. So in that way, I think that, that the, we are in an exceptional set of circumstances. It is important that people know if they have been uh, in contact with someone who has tested positive. But that's really all they need to know, in my view. I know people want to know more. They want to know where was it, when was it, who was it. And I think I'm not really particularly interested in who was it, but at least know where. So I can figure out, okay, who did I met afterwards? Who I can just ping because not all everyone has this app on their phone. I don't want to get sidetracked here because I did, that was just a question which always comes to my mind when it comes down in kind of development and digital health and all these great opportunities. But... From time to time, I feel like we have so many regulations and so many different entities that it's hard to get a product on the market or get a reimbursement. When you get this CE marking, at least, and then you try to figure out if you can get a reimbursement somewhere, it's just a difficult environment to move and to move forward and be innovative. <laughs> yeah, but, you know... The, all those procedures have existed for a long time. They mm -hmm. have just become automated and yeah. subject to electronic and sophistication technology. But the, the, the obligations have always existed. They just are, they come into the public domain more often and they're discussed more often. But they all serve a certain role uh, that needs to be addressed. Obviously, we don't need to be over-regulated, over absolutely not. But these are products that are fundamentally dangerous. A medicinal product that's true. is yeah, fundamentally sure. yeah, dangerous. That's, yeah. So it needs to be regulated. You need to demonstrate quality, safety, efficacy that mm -hmm. balances. You know, the, the risk-benefit analysis has to be conducted. Yeah. And that the, the regulations that are forced in the EU are intended to do that. And I would say that they do them, I think, well. But is there another way of doing it? Obviously, there are people, and we will see, we see that in other countries. They have different ways of doing it. Some of them are less highly regulated. Is that better? Is that worse? That's always going to be a subjective discussion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And with the challenges you just named, what, is, what do you take from that as a personal challenge for 2021? We are going to come to your goals and what you're hopefully going to accomplish in 2021. But in relation to the challenges you just named, is there specific things for you? I think for me, it is holding all the threads and helping clients to go in the right direction mm. and not be overwhelmed by all of these different responsibilities. And the, the, the situation for where we get, where, as you say, there are people from different areas and rules from different areas interacting and taking a, a practical approach. We do, for example, we get a collision every now and again between the data privacy rules and the clinical trial rules. Yeah. 
So a patient in a clinical trial must give their consent to legal obligation, give their consent to participation in a clinical trial. They must also consent to the collection of their data. Now, the Data Protection Board, European Data Protection Board, has come to the conclusion that a patient is not capable of giving their consent to the collection of their private personal data because, in accordance with the, the GDPR, their consent, in the view of the board, was not freely given. Of course, that begs the question, two questions. The first is, the patient was able to give their consent and obliged to give their consent to mm -hmm. participation in a clinical trial that could have risk for them. Yet they're not capable of giving their consent to collection of the data that's generated in that trial. <laughs> that, to me, is confusion because they are, I understand their position. Their position is consent in these circumstances can't be considered to be freely given. Yeah. But that, would, that begs the question of, is the consent for participation in the trial in itself freely given? Well, whether it's freely given or not, it's a legal obligation. So having those interactions and keeping in mind that we're talking about real people here, we're talking about real vulnerable people here. Yeah. And I think it is really important to keep that in mind, that telling someone you're not capable of giving consent, apart from anything else, the question is, what other basis, what's the other legal basis in which you're going to collect the data? And I think that the Keeping it simple, and we try to do this with patient-informed consents, that when we review them with our clients, we help them to create a document that is easily understood or as easy as it can be understood by the patient, gives the appropriate amounts of information, and that explains to them in simple terms what their data privacy rights are. They, this is what needs to be done. These are, these are people that are, are potentially putting their lives at risk. Yeah. to participate in a trial and they need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And to say, to start telling them they're not capable of giving consent, I think that's, that's hard for, yeah. for the patient to hear. And you know, they know this, they hear this. This is, you know, we are in this social media age. Everything comes into the public domain, including that. It's good that you've kind of started to flag the whole clinical trials because I want to hear your views really. And this is again, off script, but I wanted to know a bit about, do you think that the clinical trial environment is going to change based on the whole experience of the last 12 months and what's still going on right now with the pandemic? Because a lot of clinical trials got hit really hard or get delayed. People are getting into financial troubles because they're not able to continue their clinical trials based on lack of delays on the supply chain for farmers or supplies in general, or getting to the members or, or the attendees of the clinical trials to continue the whole trials itself. Do you think um, the whole environment is going to change? Honestly, no, I don't think so. The, the environment that was crafted, was created, and what is regulated is to ensure that the, the fundamental protection of, it, the fundamental aim is to protect the patient. And that has to remain a fundamental aim. So mm. I can't really see how, certainly in the short term, the regulations governing clinical trials would change and how they would accommodate it more. I would anticipate, frankly, that the current, that once the pandemic comes down, which I hope we will do sooner than later, clinical trials will recommence. Will they be different? 
there is a discussion about increasingly having the patients either being treated in outpatients rather than in hospital or mm -hmm. to have a district nurse or somebody come to visit them and at least part of the trial. There has been a lot of discussion of that, but there hasn't. I mean, I think people have noticed that digital health and remote medical treatment and things like that, there is, uh, until now, I think people all thought this is just too complicated. Uh, they've now seen that it's an obligation. It needs to be done and that way now. It's one thing to, to have ongoing medical treatment remotely, but participation in a clinical trial of a medicinal product or a medical device of which there is still a limited amount of information, I'm not sure that that would change. I'm not sure that it would be a good idea, frankly, that it would change too much. And from a supply chain perspective, because what I've heard over the last couple of months, a lot of issues were arising from the lengths of the supply chain creating those products. And then get obviously with all the problems and logistics, a huge problem to supply at least during the trial, the product that needs to be trialed. You know, the, the supply chain, certainly things like, like batch release and testing and mm -hmm. storage and delivery, those, the procedures and the rules that govern them are there for a reason. And that's to ensure yeah, sure. the stability and safety of the product. There are, of course, there's always ways to improve that procedure, but radical changes in them, I'm not sure that I would see that. Thank you for supporting my sidetrack. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> out. Um, so, but coming back to uh, 21, we work together now for the last, I would say, four years. And you are one of the partners who's traveling a lot and branching out and meeting a lot of people, speaking at various conferences. Obviously, you had to cut back on that over the last 12 months. And yeah. who knows when this is really coming back into full force. But did you set any goals for you this year? So any specific kind of things you wanted to, 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 you want to do? In some senses, yes. I am going to embrace more now that I find how, how advantageous they can be. Um, embracing more different types of communication. Uh, particularly, I have been, I participated in a number of webinars that weren't the sort of traditional, we sit down and we talk at you for 40 minute webinars. These were roundtable webinars in which people from various areas that are directly or indirectly related to the pharma device industry just talked together and answered questions. And that was, I wouldn't call myself a technophobe, but as I say, you know, um, I was, I was before the technology. Um, <laughs> So I kind of still, you know, I'm, I'm still a little bit intimidated, frankly, by it. So doing these, these alternative types of procedures and events, I actually found were really very enjoyable and very informative for me too. And to do more of those, to think about how to adapt that to help our clients understand the, the changes, some of the major substantial changes that are coming up in both the pharma and device sector this year. And from a, from a networking perspective, me as an MMBD person, obviously, that's always an interesting part of it. How do you experience the whole virtual conference system? Is this a new opportunity to reach out to people you maybe normally wouldn't get in contact with as easy on this kind of platforms? Sometimes, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are a limited number of people that are involved 
in the technical and regulatory part of yep. a uh, of the sector. So, for example, I spoke last Friday at a conference, a webinar related to the organization of virtual conferences. And at mm. that conference, among the, the speakers were conference organizers, heads of compliance and pharma and device companies, and me. And that was, you know, the, it raised such very interesting questions, such as if somebody, as we move back, hopefully back to in-person conferences, if someone attends a conference and subsequently tests positive for COVID, are you on the line? Are you going to be held liable for it? Can you, can you write in your attendance condition, you will not hold us liable if you contact COVID? And mm -hmm. can you introduce obligations like um, we're having this in-person in in conference, but you can only attend if you show us that you've been vaccinated? Can you actually do that? Mm -hmm. And this is the, the third time I have done this, conf this type of conference. And we can see it moving through. We did the first one in April last year when things were really ramping up. And yeah. then we did it in September and it was getting better. And then we did it in December and it was getting a little bit better. And this year, this one was much more, I guess it was more upbeat because people, I think, see positives and yeah. see potentially benefits, but it also raised questions that one would never have thought about before for in-person conferences. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, people, trial sponsors, you know, our clients, if our clients are sponsoring an event or engaging a healthcare professional, KOL, to speak on their behalf, if the mm -hmm. KOL contracts COVID, would our clients be held responsible? They sent them there. It, it seems a big, long stretch, but you never know. I think that's, for me, it's a perfect example that it's never getting boring because oh, there are no. always coming up new questions no, there are issues you have, to, yes. <laughs> you have to. Yes. There's always something different. There's always something which you think, because, you know, our, it's our job to think, what's the worst that can happen? And we're really quite good at, at identifying things, but it's much better to be prepared in advance. I'm just... Imagine right now, uh, as I'm a very visual person, back in the days, you had the bouncers outside the club, making sure you're of age and you're old enough to get into it. And now they're standing in front of event venues where you have like a pharma conference and checking <laughs> for vaccination passports before you're allowed to go in. Yeah. <laughs> But your can you actually... Yeah. yeah that could, Can could you happen. actually yeah. impose that obligation? Is there is there anything from a legal perspective that says you cannot say my house, my rules? Mm. It's very interesting on so many different levels. Coming slowly to an end, um, I have a couple of side questions I always like to ask. So I want to hear, and this is again like a more philosophy related question. What is success in your mind? Success in my mind is finding a way to get the client's product onto the market and keep it safely on the market and helping them to navigate and fulfill their responsibilities and helping them when they get, when they meet bumps along the road and seeing our junior colleagues embrace these same philosophies and become enthusiastic about the, the clients and their issues and helping them as well. 
I think those are the two parts to me are the two parts of the same, but both fundamentally important. And going back to the 80s, if you, <laughs> I don't want to be harsh. <laughs> so you're laughing, but going back, going back, are there any things you would have changed or you wish you would have known when you started out? If you could talk to your, um, to myself, encourage to yourself and you say, hey, a couple of tips for you. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there are because I I knew what I wanted to achieve. And I just sort of, I, it wasn't as if I woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a life science lawyer. I got the opportunity to go and study at Bruges, so I took it. I got the opportunity because I got a job in Brussels, so I took it. It wasn't as if I, I developed a strategy of what to achieve. I just, it just, life happened and my career happened. And then I focused more. So I'm I honestly not sure. I, it's like I keep saying to my associates, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you want to do the job and go home. And that's... <laughs> or you, you get off your desk for now. At, at least, least get off your desk. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah, I'm finding or here... Or your kitchen I, table or wherever you sit right you, now. <laughs> I'm saying that, and yet I think I probably spent more hours in front of the computer nowadays because, mm. you know, it's so easy just to sit down and get up and do something and then sit down again. But, yeah, I think young people nowadays are more, there's much more structure. I mean, frankly, I was one of the first full-bred European lawyers because, mm -hmm. you know, the UK and Ireland joined the EU in 1975. So by the time I, you know, I started university only five years later. So we were, by the time we got to being European lawyers, we were probably one of the first generations who actually voluntarily chose that from the beginning of their career. And it just yeah. sort of happened. Whereas now, I think there's a lot more um, pressure on young people um, to structure and to know what they want to do. And, you know, you can't possibly know what you want to do when you're only 22. So um, I have to say, I think I was actually very fortunate in how things turned out. We, we all know that the job we do is really, really time consuming. And you already said you worked over the weekend. You have a supportive family who understands what you're going through and what the issues are and what comes with this job. But if you need to relax and kick it, are there any particular things you would like to do? That I do like to do, or that I would? No, you, you would. For Does now, you? you're not allowed to travel. So, um, so well, you know, I like sitting to... in your living room and read a book. <laughs> oh, I love reading. I love reading. I like working out. I like playing the piano. You know, things that are just different. Hmm. Uh, getting out in the fresh air, just going for a walk around the corner. It's, you I know, don't know if you remember. We talked about you brought me chocolate the last, I think, I one do. and a half years ago as we met in London. As you Indeed. And I wanted to tell you that I saved this and I, uh, last week I baked uh, brownies for my family with this particular chocolate, by the way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just, it's great Belgian. And this is great. I mean, Belgian chocolate is marvelous anyway. But yeah. this, is, this is Belgian chocolate that is produced for cooking with. So you yeah, get this you really told me that. So I really, uh, really waited for a specific opportunity to use that chocolate. <laughs> oh, good for you. Oh, but don't keep it too long. I don't know how long it keeps. 
No, but it was okay. per- completely fine and it was delicious. So, uh, Good for you. you well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Good. Is there anything else you would like to, to flag, to push, anything you want to highlight uh, what we missed in our conversation? I'm going to be boring and say to, to clients, it's really important to keep up with the changes because, you know, basic principle, common law, ignorance of the law is no excuse. There are a lot of sources. We've got lots of sources. Other people got lots of sources to keep up, to keep an eye on things. Things can change quickly. I think that's a, it's, that's a good conclusion of our conversation. So, okay. yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. It was, as always, really fun. And now <laughs> I, I used the podcast as an excuse to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's very nice of you to say so. Um, thank you. I'm looking forward to working with you in the future. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's um, a pleasure. I'm going to head us out. So um, that's it for today. Uh, if you have further questions for EA, I'm going to link her bio in the description below. And if you don't want to miss any new episode and haven't subscribed yet, that's important. Uh, hit the subscription button on your favorite platform. Uh, we are going to each other in about two weeks. So thank you for tuning in. We're looking forward to have you back when we talk The Cure. <laughs> <laughs>